there's going to be areas that you excel at and there's going to be ones that are just not your forte. And the worst thing is going five, six, seven, ten years and trying to do something that you should be outsourcing to somebody else. And once you do outsource that to somebody else, you start really seeing how your business grows. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with 1 million to 100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations, not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about the pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E you're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, today's guest is being interviewed by Theo Hicks. You know Theo, he's with us every Friday on Follow Along Friday. You're going to get a lot of value from this conversation. So with that being said, let's get going. Hello, best ever listeners, and welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Theo Hicks, today's host, and today we are speaking with Jesse Fergali. Jesse, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing great, and thanks for joining us. A little bit about Jesse. He is a commercial real estate broker and investor, has 10 years of real estate investing experience, is located in Toronto, Canada. And you can say hi to him at Avison Young, A-V-I-S-O-N Young.com. So Jesse, do you mind telling us a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on today? Sure. My background in real estate is twofold. Like you mentioned, I'm a real estate agent or broker. I work in the commercial real estate space, predominantly in office, but we'll do industrial as well as retail. 
in terms of as an investor, I have been investing for about approximately 10 years. I got my start in student rental properties. So started out like everybody else with one and then slowly built a little bit of a portfolio on the student rental market. And from there kind of grew towards over the last 10 years, continuing in student rentals, purchased a few single family investments, condo investments, some assignments or wholesaling, depending on which nomenclature you use, and then um, moving into apartments today. And that's what I do. My partner and I were always looking for multifamily apartments. The more units, the better. And we're buy and hold investors. So that's kind of the snapshot. Do you still have a lot of those single family rentals? No, not really. We have kind of transitioned to is we've purchased some more condos. In my market, it's very tight. I'm in the Toronto market. It's probably most similar to San Francisco, Boston, New York. So yield is very tight. And one thing we've had is a very big constraint on supply. So condos have kind of made up for the lack of purpose-built apartment buildings. And there's a few reasons for that, but fairly briefly, it's the fact that we have in recent memory, pretty tight rent control programs. And one of the ways to avoid some of that rent control has been newer product. And the condo market has basically been there as kind of a shadow market for rentals, which is a little unfortunate. And hopefully in the future, we already have started to build more purpose-built. So long story short is that's why we've purchased quite a few condo rental investments. And those would be most similar to single family homes in other markets. So for the rent control, if you buy a newer condo, then there are no rent controls? So the way it works until fairly recently, 2017 was the change, was that provided that you had new construction, you weren't subject to rent control. There was a policy, basically, buildings built after 1991 were not subject to rent control. Buildings built before 1991 were subject to rent control, which basically meant that you had a certain guideline that the province in Canada or the state in the U.S. would allow you to raise it. And it would be indexed with inflation, which, as you can tell, is very low. So what would happen is you'd wait for a tenant to move out, and then you could mark to market the rents. Then you could take the rent, bring it up to market value. So what happened was we were in a little bit of a area with our government a few years ago that they wanted to get rid of this policy that said new construction would not be subject to rent control. That was reversed in 2017. So what we have seen is actually a 40% increase in permitting applications for purpose-built. So that's a good sign for Toronto that we're going to hopefully in the future continue to be building more purpose-built. The majority of the stock of rental properties in the greater Toronto area. And I'm pretty sure the province were built prior to 1970. So we have just this old stock. The idea that you go to an American market and you see these AAA buildings, these beautiful apartment buildings is kind of foreign to us because the majority of apartment buildings are old stock. So hopefully we're moving in the direction of being able to supply more apartment buildings. So with that same kind of apply to those newer apartment buildings. So if someone builds a new apartment building, it will not be subject to rent control. Yeah. And, and that's why we're starting to see a lot more builders. I'm not sure if Rio can, some other major builders that are basically focusing on building apartment buildings now that the rent control, they're not subject to those kind of constraints. I think this year we're allowed to raise on existing tenants 1.4%. At that point, why bother the tenant with the mm -hmm. rental increase? Okay, perfect. So how many condos do you currently have as buy and holds? Buy and holds, I believe it is seven condos right now. And the apartment building, we have one apartment building 
about an hour west of Toronto. And that's a 11 unit apartment building, which we're trying to put another unit on. To give you some context for the apartment buildings down here, the average price for an apartment building per unit in Toronto is about two hundred and seventy-five to three hundred thousand dollars a unit. Do you mind walking us through that eleven unit deal? How you found it? Yep. And then what you bought it for, and then what the business plan was. I know you already mentioned you're trying to add another unit too, but anything else about it from the business yeah. plan perspective? Yeah, no problem. That particular apartment building, we were generally looking in the area. If you think Brooklyn to Manhattan, that's this place called Hamilton, just west of Toronto. So what we did like about it was the prices weren't as crazy as the downtown Toronto market. It was a little bit in the periphery. So I think initially it was actually a marketed property. I don't think it was off market. I think the gentleman that was marketing it, we were looking at a different property of his. So he said that there was this 11 unit he thought might be interesting to us. We went, we checked out the unit and it was, it was under rented. So quite a few of the rents were under market, which we noticed that was one check mark for us and check off one of the boxes. One of the other things was that there was a motivated seller. Unfortunately, it was an older gentleman and we didn't know at the time, but I don't believe his health was particularly good. So I think just managing and owning an apartment building was just too much for him at the time. So for better or for worse, that was a positive for the deal, obviously, because he was motivated. And basically we looked at the apartment building. We saw that there was quite a bit of potential lift in the actual rent. We looked at it as a buy and hold strategy, but we kind of balanced the fact that it was still getting decent income. So we basically came from the perspective that we were going to be able to get pretty good financing on it, which we did. So went out to our mortgage broker, gave him the rent roll, the area, all the expenses, and we were able to strike a good deal from the lending perspective. So then come offer time, we put together what we thought was a great offer, a little bit of back and forth, and we're able to secure the property. So that was kind of the pre-deal mechanics. And we were happy with the purchase. Looking back now, we wish we bought 10 of them because the market has continued to increase. But in terms of what we wanted to do initially, we did the roof. We did just some kind of minor work, housekeeping things to get it kind of up to where it should be a lot of the fire code, all the electrical. And then in terms of other value adds, like I said, we are looking at adding another unit, but as of right now, we're just trying to continue to raise the rents where we can and go from there. Perfect. So let's talk about a condo deal next. So it's obviously a little bit different than the apartment. So maybe walk us through one of your more recent condo deals and same thing. How'd you find it? What'd you buy it for? What was the business plan? Actually, the place I'm in right now, I can give you kind of an example. This was supposed to be a rental, which I ended up moving into just because of life circumstances. But we'll take you back to, I believe it was 2016 that I purchased this deal. They just finished building this about four or five months ago. It's actually currently in construction right now. And it was $411,000 pre-construction condo. So for pre-construction in my market, you're typically asked to put 20% down over a certain period of time. So $400,000 installments of 5% installments, getting up to $80,000 as a down payment. In this particular market, these condos, just to give you an idea of how crazy our market has gotten, 2015, $411,000. Probably today I could probably get about $3,000 a month. So just shy of $40,000 a year on this condo. So $40,000 a year, $411,000 purchase. 
10 on a gross rent multiplier. If you work out the cap rate on that, I don't know what that really would come to. Say you use like a 50% rule on 40,000, say you're down at 20,000. You're in a pretty decent cap rate environment. Now, this particular condo today, you probably would not be able to buy this for less than $850,000. So just to give you kind of an idea of how the numbers just have completely stopped making sense from a cash flow perspective. And that's why I mentioned that our market's much more similar to kind of a San Francisco market than it is to say, I don't know, Memphis. That would kind of run you through some of the math of the condos. I genuinely don't know how anybody's buying them today unless they are just putting a massive down payment or they're just not concerned with cash flow. I was going to ask you, so I'm assuming you're not buying these types of condo deals anymore. Not in this market, that's for sure. To give you just an example of a condo market deal where if it's an hour and a half away from Toronto, say it's a student rental property because they're starting to build a lot more in condo form, then it's a little different. You're able to buy these condos, say at like two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, while still not having a ridiculous low income. So, even then, the reality is our market is just very tight, and cap rates. Just to give you an idea of cap rates on AAA office towers in the downtown area, they're trading at two point nine, three point one percent cap rates. It's very tight. So you're transitioning now to moving into apartments. We've got that 11 unit. What's the next step? Do you have anything in the works right now, apartment wise? What types of things are you doing to generate apartment leads? Things like that. So for us, basically we have a list of apartments. Like I said, Toronto, if we're at $300,000 per unit, it's very tough to just go out and buy a 50 unit. It's just millions of dollars. So for us, we're looking at anywhere from 15 to 30 unit apartment buildings. The way we're reaching out is either direct mailers to apartment owners or just as agents. We have the luxury of being able to look up CoStar or Altus, different online programs that other people don't necessarily have access to because these subscriptions are so expensive. And we'll call owners directly, basically ready to put an offer in. So right now we're looking at a 10 unit apartment building, but an hour from where I am. And we're just kind of going through the process. This was a direct outreach to an owner wasn't looking to sell. We knew where his apartment was. We called him and we said, Hey, we always come from the perspective that we would list it, which we would if it's big enough as agents. And then we say, listen, if we could bring you an offer tomorrow at this amount, would it interest you? And that's how we basically did it with this guy. We gave an opinion of value. And he said, if you can bring me an offer in that range, I'll take it seriously. So that's kind of how we've been approaching it. And I guess we'll see what happens given the current environment with life on lockdown, at least in our world, just gives you a little bit more time to reach out to these owners. That's a good strategy for those who are looking to get started and and buy a a deal in a competitive market is get your license and you've got access to all those subscriptions, call them up, ask if you can list it for them. And then as you mentioned, say, if I can bring an offer tomorrow, would you be interested? I like that strategy. Yeah. I always tell young guys in our office, you can't, you can't leave the conversation by just asking, are you looking to sell? And they say, no, it's like, well, nobody's looking to sell, but when you got an offer in front of you, maybe you're looking to sell. Exactly. All right. So last question before the money question, how are you funding your projects? Maybe give us an example of a project in the past, but is it the same thing as your own money? Is it other people's money, strictly banks? So right now I've been fortunate to continue to use our own capital. And when I say our own, my partner, Jonathan, him and I have been investing in the last few years. So we haven't hit the wall yet. And 
I understand that for most people, it's not a matter of the idea that you're going to just keep using your own capital. You will hit a point where if you're going to continue to invest, you need to look at outside funds. So for the apartment building, for instance, my partner, John and I are fortunate to make a pretty good income as agents in commercial real estate, especially with the run we've been on for the last few years. So we have taken that money and invested it into investments. And I think we both put in about $150,000 of our own capital. The rest went through a mortgage. And then I think we did a line of credit for $100,000. That was kind of the structure of that deal. The condos, again, we've been using our own capital. But like I said, we were just talking before the show, Matt Faircloth has a great book on raising capital. And the reality is you will hit a certain point where you have to use other people's capital and you need to make sure that you know how to actually raise capital and you are right now making a track record for yourself. But yeah, we're not at that point yet. And as long as we can continue to fund these with our own capital, we'll do so. But like I said, there'll come a time where we start needing to use outside resources. One more question. What percentage of your time is spent on investing related duties and what percent of the time is spent on your full-time job as a broker? My nine to five air quotes is as a broker. So that part of the Monday to Friday, coming into the office, seven, eight o'clock, leaving at six, seven o'clock, that is kind of my life as an agent. So I would say maybe 60, 40 type of thing where, as you know, as an investor, you can call it passive, but you never really turn off Mm -hmm. that part, right? Because that is always happening. But in terms of actually looking for new acquisitions, managing current ones, yeah, it'd probably be a 60-40 because everything we have is managed by a third property management company. So we're not actively managing anything except the managers. Okay. All right, Jesse, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? My best real estate investing advice, I would say by far is figure out what your strengths and weaknesses are in life in general. And it sounds kind of vague, but what I mean by that is there are certain areas, whether it's attention to detail, whether it's big picture thinking, whether it's doing the spreadsheets, it's, there's going to be areas that you excel at and there's going to be ones that are just not your forte. And the worst thing is going five, six, seven, ten 10 years and trying to do something that you should be outsourcing to somebody else. And once you do outsource that to somebody else, you start really seeing how your business grows. So for instance, myself, as much as I love the deal level of the different investments we do, when it starts getting really into the minutia, I'm not a detail-oriented person in that way. And I know that there are people that I work with that really excel at that. So identifying that person and delegating those tasks to that person, it's just going to save you so much time and headache in your investments. And I think, like I said, in life in general, any task you do or anything that you kind of embark on that you're trying to achieve something. I think just understanding where you are in terms of your strengths. All righty, ready for the best ever lightning round? I think so. All righty, first a quick bird from our sponsor. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. Ready to enter the minds of successful entrepreneurs and millionaires? Are you ready to excel in your entrepreneurial and investing journey? The new podcast, Before the Millions, studies phenomenal entrepreneurs and their path to millions. Journey through exclusive interviews, giving you all the secrets to mimic their successes. Listen and subscribe to Before the Millions podcast at 
beforethemillions.com. That's beforethemillions.com. Okay, what is the best ever book you've recently read? Oh, recently. That's a good one. You know what? I read it recently. It's in kind of an older book. Not older, old, but it's basically The Morning Miracle. Let me just pull out the... By, uh, uh, by Hal you, Elrod? Yeah, Hal Elrod. That was a great book. Just reminded me of just kind of like getting everything in order. But there was a really good book by uh, Kelly McGonigal that I read recently called The Willpower Instinct. That's a fantastic book. It's not necessarily real estate related, but I think it benefit anybody that has goals they're trying to achieve in their life. If your business were to collapse today, and I guess in this case, businesses, what would you do next? So if my real estate business, if everything collapsed again today, I'd probably take the knowledge that I have been fortunate enough to receive over the last 10 years and probably apply it back to the beginning of how I got into real estate. And that started at a bookstore. Research what you're interested in. The biggest thing I find people don't do that you hear people give it as advice is get a mentor. It will fast track everything. There is no substitute. Find somebody that you see what they're doing that you want to do find those people because it will just save you years and your path towards that if that's your goal. So besides the condo you're in now, which was definitely an amazing deal, what was your best ever deal? It could be a condo or it could even be one of your deals as a broker. The best ever deal would probably be the first or second student rental property I bought only because you learn so much on your first couple deals and you don't realize at the time that you're going through a school of hard knocks with investing. So that would be one of the first properties I bought was $250,000. I think it was 2009. And I had five university girls living in there from one of the universities, not too far from me. And basically through that particular property, the reason I say it's the best ever deal, it wasn't the biggest return on investment, but when all was said and done, I think I sold that at $470,000 a few years after that. So I think five or six years after that. But the reason it was great for me, it was I learned how to take an under market property, bring the rents to market. I learned how to deal with tenants for the first time. And I had never done that before. I learned how to deal with contractors ranging from going in the back and having the city make us remove five or six gigantic trees. I had no idea that city could do that at the time and how many thousands of dollars it takes to remove trees. It was a house that was built in the early 20th century. So it was dealing with knob and tube electrical, just everything you can imagine that a 20 year old guy had no clue of at the time kind of shaped me up and made me think a lot more diligently and a little bit more thoughtfully about future investments. So call that one the best deal ever. Yeah, well, I can definitely relate with that. And the best ever listeners have heard this story a bunch of times, but I forgot to turn the utilities on and transition into my name on my first property. And so the first day I walked in there, there was a waterfall in the basement because the pipes burst. I totally understand that was probably my best ever deal as well. All right, what is the best ever way you like to give back? The best ever way I like to give back? You know what? For me, it's first of all, in downtown Toronto, I'm sure in a lot of major cities, I'm trying to give knowledge to other people that are trying to get into our industry as well. And that's why for me, I've started as a contributor for the Bigger Pockets podcast and YouTube videos. Anytime I can give information that will help people. And I can't remember who was saying this to me recently, but they basically said, if you have an expertise in something, or if you even generally have more knowledge than the average person in something, he said that 
you have a duty to share that with people. And I thought that was an interesting word. It wasn't just like, hey, take a YouTube channel and start saying stuff or telling people, but just an obligation to give that knowledge to other people. Aside from that, trying to help out where I can with causes in Toronto. Avison Young is a big believer in a lot of the major causes in the downtown area, whether it's heart and stroke, melanoma. We do what we can from that point of view as well. But yeah, just also carving out a little bit of time in your day, whether it's 10 seconds or 10 minutes to just think a little bit about gratitude and kind of what you're grateful for and a little bit about the advantages I have that other people don't. And then lastly, what is the best ever place to reach you? Best ever place to reach me is probably go on Instagram or YouTube. So on Instagram, it'd be J for gals, F-R-A-G-A-L-Z or Z, depending if you're North or South of my border and Jesse for on YouTube. And if you Google it, I'm sure Google will explain it, how to spell it properly. You guys always say Z for Z? I go back and forth, but when you get some super Canadian people and then they're just, it's not Z, it's Z. I'm like, all right. <laughs> I guess it does sound like C if you yeah. get mixed up. You know what it is? It depends how close you are to Toronto. It's like Chicago. You're in a major market. Whereas if you go to Newfoundland or you go into some periphery markets, you start hearing a little different twang in somebody's voice. But- <laughs> Good stuff, Jesse. Well, thanks again for joining us today to talk about your experience and your transition into apartments. Just to summarize what we talked about, we talked about how you've got 10 years, started off with those student rental properties, purchased some SFRs and condos, dabbled in wholesaling, and then moving into apartments. We talked about rent control and how new construction is not subject to rent control. And so you're seeing a pretty big uptick in purpose-built permitting applications. So you said you got seven condos right now and you've got the 11 units. We talked about where you're at. Multifamily is pretty expensive, so you're not looking at 50 units. You're focusing more on the 15 to 30 unit buildings. We talked about specifically your 11 unit building that was a little bit further out from downtown. It was initially on market. You ended up getting it from a motivated seller who was in bad health, the buy and hold strategy. It was a few minor things, roof, fire code, electrical. You're looking to add another unit. We talked about your condo deal that you're living in now, which you bought in 2016 for 411K, and now it's worth $850,000, which is why you're not focusing on condos as much anymore, because you really can't get cash flow at that price point. You talked about how, again, your plan now is to focus on those 15 to 30 unit apartment buildings. And the strategy I really liked was your broker agent, you've got access to some of the better co-star type online applications and programs. So you're calling owners directly. And as you mentioned, you don't want to just say, hey, do you want to sell us your deal? And they say no, and you hang up. You tell them, hey, if, if we have an offer, would you be willing to sell your deal? Would you be interested? And you also look at it from the perspective as an agent saying that I can list this property for you and then transitioning into submitting an offer. We've talked about how personally you and your partner are funding your deals right now, but you eventually want to transition into raising capital or will have to eventually transition into raising capital and that your experience will make that process a lot easier since you have that track record. And then we talked about your best ever advice, which is to figure out what you're good at and what you're bad at in real estate, but also just in life in general. So if you notice you're not very detail oriented, then make sure you're outsourcing those types of things to other people and then vice versa. So unfortunately we didn't get into any of the brokerage stuff. I'm sure you've got a lot of, of solid advice on that. So maybe we can get you back for a skill set Sunday to talk about how to be a best ever commercial broker in a crazy market like Toronto. <laughs> but until then, thanks for joining us. Best ever listeners. Thanks for listening as always. Have a best ever day and we will talk to you tomorrow. Awesome. Thanks.